Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back, everyone, to the Need to Know podcast. Excited today because I'm going to bring back two of our friends. We had them on a couple months ago uh, to talk about some issues with Congress. And since we've reached the quasi-recess of August, we thought it might be a nice time to talk about what it takes to be a good staffer. Welcoming back to the podcast one more time, Monica Pham and Natalie Binkholder. Uh, both have served on the Hill in multiple positions throughout and uh, have left the Hill now. So former staff intelligence here. So Monica and Natalie, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having us, Aaron. The last episode that we did went so well, we decided we wanted to do this again, try another topic on what makes good Hill staffers. Uh, so we actually came up with a top 10 list. Uh, Natalie, you served as a chief. And Monica, you've held several positions with several members. Um, So you've dealt with a lot of colleagues, a lot of interns, and we know that there's a lot of staffers who listen to this show and a lot of interns uh, or potential interns as students uh, that maybe are looking to break into this world of Capitol Hill and how do you become a staffer and what makes a good staffer. So that's what we want to do here. From both of your experiences, I guess... Talk about how you got to the Hill. Let's start there. And then we'll go into this top 10 idea. How did you start on the Hill, Monica? So I guess important to note is uh, both my parents are refugees from Vietnam. So I was always really interested in American policy and how it affects others. Um, I started off as a neurobio major and ended up going to the Department of Veteran Affairs, where I thought I was going to work at Walter Reed but ended up getting thrown in the Office of General Counsel. So from there, I noticed uh, how they prepped the secretary to justify his budget or her budget before Congress. And I noticed all the people behind the dais, um, behind the senators, were all lawyers. So ended up going to law school, got my master's as well, and then was interested in coming to work on the Hill after I worked at the UN, but I didn't know how to get a foothold in. So I heard about a fellowship um, through APAC. So that's the Asian Pacific American Institute for Congressional Studies. And it's incredibly important. There's um, three different, APAC, CBCF, as well as CHCI, which give opportunities to traditionally um, underrepresented communities to get sort of a foothold into policy. So I applied. They were nice enough to hire me. And Congressman Mike Honda was the lucky victim who got me <laughs> for that year. So that's how I started. And Natalie, how did you get how did you get your start on Capitol Hill? Um, sort of a unicorn story, but I, I like telling it because it does really happen. And I think um, especially folks looking to start on the Hill should know this. Um, I found my job on Brad Traverse. So prior to coming to D.C., I had some experience in state at a state legislature, 
Um, when I was changing, I figured, you know, as a person who does policy, there's no better place in the world to do that than Washington, D.C. So I packed up my car with some clothes and without a job and found a sublet for six weeks in a group house and moved out here and said, I'm going to see if I can make it work. Um, I was not set on working on the Hill. I was applying for jobs all over the place. Um, but I found a job posting on Brad Traverse that said Southern Republican seeks counsel. And I sent my resume in that way. And somehow my resume was sifted through the pile. I had a couple of really good interviews and um, I landed in my congressional office and it was such a wonderful fit. I stayed there the entire pendency of my time on the Hill. So that is really cool. That's one of those things about D.C. I love the stories of people who packed up their car, didn't really have a plan. You know, it's like going to Broadway and, you know, I'm j I'm just going to be a star. It's just it's just going to happen. Uh, and it, it's amazing. So this is cool because we have you, your perspective. I started out just I, I decided to take an internship. There was a guy in my class who got a White House internship and I was like, well, he goes to the same school I do. I can I can apply for an internship too. Uh, I applied to the White House and didn't get it, but I did get into Hal Rogers' office, and that's how I started. So I just started as an intern, and then was able to to step in when the staff assistant left that entry level position. Was able to to go right in. So uh, it's really interesting. We've got this sort of diverse set of circumstances for each of us to lead to the hill um and plenty of experience to talk about what we're going to discuss here with our top 10 so getting into our top 10 and uh we we had a lot of discussion about this monica really helped put this together uh natalie sent in her top 10 which basically paralleled exactly along these lines uh so it was really cool that we had uh Two people who working separately came up with basically the same ideas. Let's start with discretion. Watching what you say, what you do. Monica, you want to kick us off with discretion top in our top 10 here? Yeah, absolutely. I think, one, it's paramount. It's one of the most important things that you must have as a good staffer, not just on Capitol Hill if you work for a governor, if you work in any type of politics, um, and frankly, in business as well, in terms of like trade secrets and proprietary things, you got to keep things to yourself. But one of the things that I think is important is, you know, you're exposed to a lot of different people, a lot of different things, and you need to know when you can discuss it and when you can't. And there's a lot of stuff that's off limits. Like you should just know immediately if your boss is discussing you know, a bill idea, something that is unique or something that he or she has not socialized around the caucus or even, you know, discussing things on off hours when you're driving them in the car and you are talking about something that you're about to do at the next meeting or whatever. There's all sorts of stuff that gets leaked all the time, sometimes on purpose, sometimes not. And you never want it attributed to you. Like one when people get hired, they want to know that within the confines of the office, you're able to do your work, do it well, and not be a liability, as it were, to the press. And also, the same thing goes for posting on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, any of those social media. I can't tell you how many times I've seen, you know, footage from inside the Capitol that there should not be any footage. And there's a reason why they take your phone before you go into a skiff. Like you should not be, you know, 
disclosing anything. And a lot of the times this um, material that you're exposed to is enormously sensitive. Some of it is, you know, clearance. Some of it's not, depending on where you work. But the other piece is also you just need to know how to make sure that you're a trusted source, that you're a trusted staffer, and you're someone that everybody can depend on. Whether or not it's said in confidence, you'll know the difference. To add on to what Monica said, a lot of times these topics and issues are being discussed not only behind closed doors, but sometimes you're in an elevator having a discussion with your boss about a bill that he or she wants to do. You're on the way to the floor talking about vote recommendations or other members' positions on things. You're at a dinner. Um, So these conversations sometimes happen not in a place that is always going to be um, 100% secure and secret. So I also like to call this know the code because as a staffer, you might be in the elevator listening to another staffer and their boss talking about something that's sensitive. You don't want to be the person that's calling up the press to share that information because the very next week, you may be the staffer that's in the elevator having the conversation with your boss. And members of Congress know that they are fair game in what they say and do But that's not true of staff. Staff um, across the ideological spectrum are all trying to do the right thing. They're trying to solve problems. They're trying to help their bosses be successful. And so I call it knowing the code with your fellow staffers um, in terms of having that discretion, because sometimes you will hear things that you didn't expect to hear. But trust me, you want to keep those, those things to yourself. Also, on the flip side for that, Natalie, not just stuff that you hear, but also stuff that you say. Like one of the things that I find fascinating is I've been in so many elevators. One, I look extremely young. So nobody thinks I have any (laughs) modicum of influence, which I probably don't. But also I speak Spanish. So I will overhear things that people feel very free to say. And I think you never know what, you know, Congressman Honda also speaks Spanish fluently. You never know what language people speak where they are in terms of the political spectrum and totem pole. And you want to be as careful as you can with your words, but also, as Natalie said, extend the same courtesy to your fellow staffers. And if they're having a conversation or discussing something that may not even see the light of day, much less the floor, keep it to yourself. I would also add watching out for talking in taxi cabs, Ubers, and Lyfts. A lot of times I I notice people act as if the driver isn't actually a person. Um, and especially when you're talking about Uber and Lyft, you don't know what that person does as a day job. Also, when you go on trips, uh, there's a lot of times I've noticed there's a lot of discussion that will take place at dinners and in corridors and everything else. You never know. Uh, sometimes you're being followed, uh, in some of these foreign countries when you go on trips, uh, by some foreign countries, intelligence services. I know we've had that happen before. So, Uh, A couple of other things to just raise on the flags there. All right, let's move on to number two. Um, Putting team needs above your own. Natalie, can we kick this one off? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I loved about working on the Hill is that you, it really is such a um, team environment and you feel like you're in the trenches with the people in your congressional office um, and it breeds this wonderful work environment. But it's also important to remember that it's not Natalie Binkholder's name who's on the door. And so while I had a lot of freedom and latitude to make decisions about things, at the end of the day, everything that I was doing 
reflected on my boss. Um, and, and it's, I think it's important for staffers to always keep that in mind, um, that you are representing your boss at all times. You don't want to be more well known, more famous, um, than your boss. You don't want to be the, the person who's seeking out, you know, the media attention. Um, you don't want stories written about you in the paper. Indeed. Indeed. Monica, anything to add on that one? I work for two members of Congress, two senators and a governor. And I think the, you know, connecting thread between all of them is like, it's an incredibly team based sport. Like no one person can do it all. The governor cannot do it by himself, nor can the senator. So they have people on comms. They have people on policy, on ledge. Everybody has to work together as a team. And if we're all paddling in the same direction, you get really incredible and amazing results. But that situation is extremely unique in terms of when you're in the ledge pit together, everybody has to be pulling their own weight, but pulling together. And I think Natalie's correct. It's not like there's no I in team. Um, yeah, people are very type A, incredibly competitive, all those things. But you have to be able to work together, share information, like information, that's our currency. And the only way you can get information is if people like you, if you can form that relationship and be able to work well with others. And one of the, you know, sort of kisses of death is somebody who is incredibly intention seeking. I would always say that working on the hill is like the bachelor, you know, who's in it for the right reasons. Like you will see right away if somebody is like raising their hand, tweeting stuff, doing all the things. And you're like, oh no, this is not, this is not a public servant. This is not one person who is here to, you know, sort of help the constituency or move the ball forward. And I think you always have to remember as a staffer is you represent your boss 100% of the time, even on Friday night at the bar. You are still a representative of your boss. What you say, what you do, what you act, what you put out there in social media all reflects back. And we have all seen the stories on the Hill where somebody accidentally brought their gun in their car to the Hill or brought, you know, some illegal substance through the mags when they walked in or something as silly as like criticizing, you know, public officials or, or like put a, out a put out a less than savory tweet late at night after yes. probably imbibing and had to resign the next day. I mean, you don't want to be that person. Exactly. So. And like we've all seen it happen and you want to be even like not accidentally don't be that person that does it purposefully. Like you are trying to carve out a name or a brand for yourself. That's fine, but that's not something that you do at the expense of your team or at the expense of your boss because at the end of the day you have to be mindful for who will bear the brunt of your mistakes if you are talking on behalf of someone else. So that's just something that I think is incredibly important to keep in mind. All right, moving on to number three. Monica, talk to us about accountability. And coming from a trained lawyer, <laughs> accountability means a lot. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Natalie and I are both... Uh, reformed and recovering attorneys. So we have that in common. But I think in the Hill, you just get so incredibly busy. Like one day feels like 12 because of the number of meetings, the number of conversations you have. But accountability is incredibly important in terms of do what you say you're going to do and acknowledge communication, even if you can't respond. So I find this like easier said than done. But if you say you're going to call somebody back, call them back. And if you can't get to them that day, let them know that the day got away from you. You're happy to, you know, touch base tomorrow or whatever it may be. And as a 
you know, the case with many things, sometimes you can make a decision very quickly and you can respond. Other times you have to say, thanks for sending that. I acknowledge I got it. Let me think about this a little bit more and I'll get back to you. I mean, you really do want, do want to be as responsive as you can. Like being labeled unresponsive is just a nightmare. You do not want to be that person. And you also don't want to leave people hanging. You know what it feels like to know that the cloakroom is waiting for something. And if someone's going to co-sponsor your amendment, you need to know now. And if they can't, that's fine. But give a person, you know, the courtesy of a heads up either way. The other piece about accountability is you have a million people coming into your office to see you, to talk to you, some of who have spent their own personal money to fly in to come see you, to talk to you about something that they really care about. And it is beholden on you as a representative of your boss to not only give that person your time, but to write them back, to say thank you when they give you information, offer to be a resource. You know, if you say in a meeting that you're going to get back to someone with some information, get back to them because they chances are they're waiting on it. Yeah, they say um, that some of the biggest challenges in relationships, any kind of human relationship, is unmet expectations. So a big part of being accountable is making sure that everybody, that you're meeting those expectations that you have for the people that you're working with and working for. Um, I, I personally try to have a 24-hour email policy where within 24 hours of receiving it, I will respond to it. Um, I will file it where it needs to go. I will delete it if it's not something that, that warrants a response that may not work for everybody. Maybe, you know, for you, it's three days. Um, maybe you have a meeting and it's, you know, it's going to take you a week to get back to that person with the information that they're looking for. That's fine, but it's important to communicate that and then be responsive on the timeline that you set for that. And I think that solves a lot of problems. I think that the something to really help if there's somebody who's interested in getting onto the Hill is explaining this email challenge. Uh, I know that when I was on the Hill, which is now seven years ago, when I left, I was getting, I, 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 I tabulated it one time during a recess. So it was like the slower period, but I tabulated, I was getting about 500 emails a day. Um, and that is not unusual for the time. And it may be worse now. But it was a constant effort. You need to develop your own system for how you're going to manage that because it's not going to let up. It's not going to change for you. You have to figure out some way to manage it, an unmanageable situation. So Natalie's talking about filing and having, you know, uh, you know, deleting and kind of keeping on top of that. That's as much a part of the job and part of this accountability, too, because the answer, oh, I'm sorry, I missed this in my inbox isn't really going to cut much ice with many people because your inability to manage your inbox is not my problem. Yeah. Pro tip number one, rules for Outlook. Like one, having a folder for all your dear colleagues because that will blow your inbox up. Um, two, your Politico Pro, that's another folder. And then three, unfortunately, this is the case, one for your boss. Like those need to be prioritized, bold, highlighted, red, underline all those things um because it, you're right Aaron it does get lost in the fray like it is absurd the amount of emails that one person will get um in a day and i think one of the things that i learned in the private sector thus far is you can tell how senior someone is by the length of their email if it just says no you know that's the senator <laughs> if it says if it's long and it's a whole thing explaining point a point b that's not 
the person that's really in charge. <laughs> yeah, for for aspiring or young hill staff, I cannot say this enough times, you have to be highly, highly, highly organized. If that's not your strong suit, work on it, um, read books about it, talk to somebody that is organized, find out what they do. That is so important. So figure out whatever you need to do to keep yourself organized and be able to multitask. Um, more than anything on the hill, you have to be able to switch, um, switch your brain to different activities all the time. You may be in the middle of writing a memo and somebody comes in and asks about a floor vote, or you need to sign off on a comms thing. Um, you just have to be able to manage a lot of different issues all at the same time. So multitasking and organization. But that also is part of what makes working on the hill fun. Yes. Is the fact that you don't always know what you're going to be dealing with when you walk in on a given day. You don't know what you're going to be doing next week. You don't know what fires are going to pop up. That's part of what makes it fun. But it's part of also where this accountability question is seriously comes into play because you do, as Monica said, represent your boss in every situation. All right, moving on to number four. Four, Natalie's going to talk to us about always doing what you're assigned with excellence. Yes. Um, I think one of the things young Hill staffers general, I'm speaking generally, um, tend to struggle with is, you know, you, you get that first job as an intern or a staff assistant and you've, you're excited about it and you see these, you know, LCs and LAs and LDs and you're like, I want to be that someday. And you're bopping along and, you know, you've been a a staff assistant answering calls for a year. And like, that's hard. That's a tough job. Um, But you're like, but I've done it a year. So now it's time. It's time for me to be a legislative correspondent. Uh, Maybe, but only if you've done the job that you currently have with excellence. People want to promote people that do the work that they've been given very well. So the biggest advice I can, I can give you is whatever your job is, if it's talking to constituents, if it's folding letters, if it's giving capital tours, if it's writing research memos for more senior staff, whatever that is, do it to the best of your abilities. Endeavor to be the very best person that talks to constituents, the very best giver of capital tours, the very best letter folder. And people will notice that. And when you've taken that work and you've done it so well, and then you have this extra time on your plate, people want to give you more responsibilities. And for myself personally, I almost never had to ask for a promotion because I was doing my work so well that, that when those opportunities came along, people asked me, do you want this next step? Do you want this next role? Um, so that, do the work that you've been assigned as best that you possibly can. And I think everything else will naturally flow. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think Natalie makes a good point in terms of we, you know, as hiring managers, as senior staff, we're watching all the time and we know who actually does the work and who is putting in the time. And that doesn't necessarily mean like staying late or, you know, sacrificing your personal time, but the time that you're there, being able to pitch in anytime somebody needs something. I also want to add to this that not only do you need to be excellent at what you're doing, but sometimes if you're seeking a promotion, you also need to help somebody else be excellent at what they're doing. Because I know in my situation, when as I was moving through the ranks, 
they would want to do a promotion, but they would then have a hole, right? So they want to make sure that the staff assistant could move up into LC if you want to move from LC to LA. Well, you got to help the staff assistant out to make sure that they're doing excellent letters, right? So yes, there's a, a sort of a self-promotion idea in that too, but that's also just being a good colleague, right? You're trying to teach somebody and help somebody in their career. That's That has benefits to you also as you work through the whole. I find too many staffers are all in it for themselves and they are, you know, they want to run for office someday or they want to get the big lobbying job and they're very, and they're, and, and some are just downright mean to their colleagues, but this is sort of a, just a, being, being kind. I know we hear it so much nowadays that it's, it's almost just, you know, trite, but being kind and helping somebody else along the way that, that pays benefits too. And that's not just to the other person. It's to you as well. Yeah. And I think, it harkens back to the putting team needs above your own, like not just within your office, but also just within like the halls of Congress. One of the things that I think is the, the two most important things, be kind and no surprises. Like you always want to give people heads up on things, but you want to be kind to them as well in terms of like, you, we all know how hard it is to work up there. The hours are brutal. The pressure is intense. Your memo could end up on the front of the Washington Post. There's very high visibility. But you want to be able to help the people that are around you and also help people that want to someday be you. So take that coffee, make the time to talk to people who are interested in what you're doing, because chances are you're doing the same thing. You're reaching out to somebody who's working on something that you'd like to do someday or you would like to be a part of. And it's all an ecosystem. We all help each other, especially when it comes to getting like political appointments, moving to the administration, you know, going back, even doing something as simple as pass back on legislation. You want to be able to have people who trust you, who know you're an honest broker and who know that you are not trying, you know, there's the, the term is sharp elbows to start like harming people on the way there. And my boss, um, Senator Jack Reed, you know, one of the nicest people you'll ever meet, one of the kindest people you ever meet. But one of the things that I, you know, sort of always remember working for him is it's not just the end result but the method by which you get there. If you cross the finish line and there's like bodies behind you, that was not the way to do it. You have to be kind to those that you encounter along the way. And you find that you get a lot farther, a lot faster if you help each other. Yeah. That, that mentorship is really important um, because you'll have people who are mentoring you. You want to pay it forward and mentor others. And I will say to Monica's point about being kind and uh, Beyond just that's the kind of person we should all want to be, but Washington, D.C. is a very small town. Um, you never know when your true story intern is going to be, you know, one of the most senior advisors inside of the White House. Um, so people can end up in all different kinds of places, and that's wonderful. But it, but you want to make sure that you have those relationships and and you've kept them and built them and nurtured them and your reputation matters more than almost anything in Washington. So try to keep it as sterling as you possibly can, because you only really get one. <laughs> you make a great point about those interns. It's easy to be like, Hey, I'm big, bad staffer. You're just lowly intern. But guess what? When you move on to the big lobbying job and you go into that office, who's been hired on as a staffer, that intern that remembers you. Um, let's move on to the next one. Let's see here. Number five will be learn to write quickly and concisely. I would say that the hardest thing that I ever did 
on the Hill, the hardest assignments I ever were, was given was to write a one minute speech. It goes by fast. How do you take the health care bill? How do you take Obamacare and talk about it in 60 seconds? Uh, that's the hardest thing to do, but you have to do it quickly. And so those are those are tough. Monica, what do you got to say about this? Um, along the same lines, like I have a boss that will, I had a boss that will remain nameless that told me they were going down to the floor. They'd like to talk about this. And then they started walking. I had from the time they left the office, got on the Rayburn train to the floor to type it out, fax it to the cloakroom and then send an email copy of it. And that is not unheard of. I think when people talk about tight deadlines, like you have not seen a tight deadline until you've worked on the Hill. I remember my first day um, in the private sector, they told me I had two weeks and they were like, I hope that's enough time. And I just started laughing because, you know, the, the deadlines that we're used to are very short, very concise. And, you know, if you are writing a memo for a member of Congress, think about the number of topics that are coming into them. It is not a treatise. It is not the epilogue of the great American novel. It is meant to communicate the most salient and important points that you want to convey to the boss. No more, no less. You know, one of the things that I love the saying is, if I ask you for the time, don't tell me how the watch works. Just tell me what time it is. If we want you for more information, we'll ask for it. Um, but I think sometimes early on in people's career, their thirst for wanting to show how much they know is a long memo, and that is not the way to work. Strong writing skills are absolutely critical. Absolutely critical. As you apply for jobs, you will see certain job postings ask for a writing sample because it is so important to know that this is not not something that you have to start, you know, at the ground floor teaching somebody when they come into your office. It's so important to have strong writing skills. Some people come by it naturally, but it is 100% a skill that you can develop. Um, and there are resources out there to work on it. Um, but it is very, very, very important. I cannot stress it enough. It's probably the number one thing we looked for when we were looking to hire people. And a lot of jobs have like a writing test. Like after you pass the first interview, they will put you in a room for 30 minutes, give you something and see what you get when you come out. And I think, you know, Natalie and I, as I re referenced before, are both former attorneys. Attorney writing, legal writing is very different than Hill writing. And I had you know, some of the most brilliant people that were fellows that worked for me. And I was like, great, thanks for this. Throw it in the trash. Please redo. Because <laughs> it has to be quick, short, pithy, punchy. And, you know, it's great that you know all these things, but think about what your boss is up against and how many things that they have to juggle on their plate. And also, how long is the American attention span? How long is it really? You know, think, think about it through that lens. Yeah, I um I went to journalism school and one of the things they taught us was write short and write at about a seventh grade level because that's where most people, regardless of their education level, that's where most people like to absorb information. You don't want to use the biggest word you can possibly think of when a simpler, more straightforward word will do. All right, we're going to take uh, we're speed things up as we go on the downhill side of our top 10. Uh, want to talk about uh, number six, emotional regulation. Number seven, admitting what you don't know. And number eight, admitting your failures. And when I saw these come through uh, when we were discussing this 
prior to doing this show. I, re- I, I thought back to my time on the Hill. I took a job on the Hill straight out of college. I was a very young guy. These were probably the hardest things for me to do at, at that age. I had to realize and learn a lot about myself in order to be a better staffer. So I think there, these three are sort of variations on a theme, all having to do with ego. I think you really got to check your ego at the door. You one emotional regulation. It's not about you. It's never about you. Um, but this is something that I've noticed, like not just in corporate America, but any place where there is a power center and people are extremely highly pressed, um, remaining calm and having a steady hand at the wheel is incredibly important. And I think Natalie can vouch for this as like a chief of staff, a leader, an LD, anything. Your team sees you panicking, they will panic. Um, and part of being on the hill is just being comfortable with discomfort. You will constantly not know what's going on. Like the saying is, you make plans, God laughs on the hill. You make plans, the parliamentarian laughs. Like, best of luck to you if you think this is how it's going to go down. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is important is you got to know yourself, control yourself, and then know others and do for others. Like building that social capital and helping other people and making sure that you are able to not lose your mind on people. I've seen so many relationships blow up, break up because of a misunderstanding or a miscommunication. Um, and the other two, in terms of admitting your failures, admitting what you don't know, um, the Hill is so focused on having these people that are incredibly smart, incredibly good at what they do. And I will say, like, as a fellow, I came to the Hill when I was almost 30. And there were people that were outranking me at age 23, 24, because they had been on the Hill for two or three years. I didn't know what a dear colleague was. I don't know where to you know, file things at the cloakroom, but they do. And it's incumbent on me to know that this is not my area of expertise and I'm learning from somebody. Like, just because you have a number of degrees doesn't mean anything. And we hired once, I think, a Rhodes Scholar. And one of the things that I thought I was so impressed, because everyone was like, whoa, this person's super smart. One of the things that I was so impressed by her is she was like, I don't know what that is. Can you help me understand? Can you educate me? Her intellectual honesty and ability to open and be very secure in what she did know and mastery of what she did know, but she didn't know this area. And I think that's incredibly important. And admitting your failures is in, is so crucial. In a town where there is trust, if you lie, if you say it wasn't you, or you didn't drop the ball, or something happened, you try to pin it on somebody else, it's not going to go well. Like, we all make mistakes. And as a manager, one of the things I always ask is you don't make the same mistake twice. You know, apologize for it, move forward. And I think you'll be better off for it. And I think, unfortunately, these days we find a lot of politicians not wanting to apologize for things. But for staff, you know, you really need to understand that, like, someone was counting on you. You didn't quite deliver. But that's okay. You didn't know. And next time you will. I think the the things I'll add about these three, um, Congress can be a very high-stress, high-pressure working environment. So when it comes to emotional regulation, I think it is very important that each person finds an outlet for that stress, whatever that is, whether it's running or reading a book or calling your family, having a drink with a friend, whatever it is, we all need to find an outlet for some of that stress. Otherwise, you will not be able to bring your best self and your most calm, responsible self to the office. So 
Um, that's very important. And it's, it's just really important for your mental and emotional health as a human as well. Um, and then I, I will say it is always, always, always better to say, I don't know than to try to make up an answer and look like you do, because it is going to come back and bite you in the butt. And people will respect you more if you say, I don't know, let me go find out for you. That is always the right way to go. Do not make up, do not make up information. Just say, I don't know. We, no one can know everything. So there's, there's no shame in it whatsoever. Well, I think that's one of the things though about the Hill is that people do expect Hill staffers to know everything, which is, I think, uh, one of the, one of the daunting things about being a Hill staffer, you end up being a mile wide and an inch deep on so many issues. Um, but I know that when I started taking issue areas, the chief of staff called me into his office on a Friday and was like, Hey, what, uh, we're thinking about giving you some issues. What issue areas do you think you want to take? And I had gone to school thinking that I'd be a teacher. So I thought I like education. I'll go with education, not realizing that along with education came labor and healthcare. I didn't know a thing about labor and healthcare, but on Monday I'm taking meetings and how many meetings am I taking on education? Zero. Oh, how many meetings am I taking on healthcare? All of them. Right. And I'm like, I don't know anything about Medicare and all this, but I had to learn on the fly. How did I learn? I learned by asking the people who were doing it. Right. And you will find that those people who are coming in to talk to you about this, the, the people in the industry groups and the lobbyists and the, the people at the universities and those who care about these issues and your constituents, they're more than happy to explain it to you. They want to be your teacher and mentor. Now, sometimes you're going to have to go back and double check. You need to check your facts, but they love to, to help you understand that stuff. Another thing that I and I think this goes back to the ego uh, and maybe this is, you know, just the ego of, you know, 20 something Aaron Jones that was, you know, going onto the hill. But, you know, you take so many meetings and, you know, you start to feel like, you know, your time is so valuable, right? You know, I am big bad staffer and they're coming to see me. This goes back to what was said earlier. You are representing your boss. It's not really you they want to see it's really your your boss they want to be in your boss's office right uh and but i realized you're welcoming constituents into a little piece of what this is like an extension of their home right this is their member's office and i had a mentor one time that is like you know you need to smile you need to make sure that they feel welcome. You know, this is not, you know, that you're not being rude, essentially. And that is so much that I had to learn on how to really make people feel welcome and feel like that I was there to help rather than their, you know, supplicants coming to me, because that's not the situation that you're in. Yeah, and if you think about it, like sort of the way um, the Constitution is written, it's we the people, that's where the power derives from. And also, Another thing, you bring up a good point, Aaron, is that proximity to power doesn't mean that you wield it. Just because you're close or within the orbit does not mean you're the power center. Um, and I come at this from a really unique perspective because my family, as I said before, are refugees. And it was Senator Frank Murkowski who ended up helping save a lot of my family members to come over. And I remember, I think I was probably like six years old, we went into the senator's office some of my family members didn't speak English. It was the first time we were going into a place of enormous esteem. And people are scared. Like, they are going to meet someone with enormous power to, you know, decide whether or not they can come to the United States. 
And this is someone who's there to help. And I remember the staff assistant who got my mom coffee and who, you know, talked to me, gave me toys, like all those things, you know, really last and remember, you know, it leaves an impression on you. And it was one of the reasons I, you know, decided to dedicate my life towards this profession. So you never know who you're going to meet and who's watching you, who's listening to you, who's talking to you. Um, it might be some small kid that's part of a, you know, fly-in that may come back 20 years later to work in the same place. That is an amazing story. My story doesn't come anywhere close to it. Uh, but, but, it re- <laughs> but it reminded me that there is a staffer on the Hill right now that I realized uh, that I gave a tour to when he was like nine. Yeah. And, and that is just like so amazing to me. I think Natalie said it. If you want to give tours, give the best tours you can, right? <laughs> and make People sure. They're thrilled. They love it. Yeah. And make sure you're not giving them, you know, the all, all the fake stuff too. I was a history nerd. I got into the real stuff and I like to show that stuff. But, you know, he's on the hill now and attends Wilson Center briefings. So how great is that? You know, so I totally agree with that, that you and like, I think is something that we've said several times so far today. You never know where that person's going to be that you're trying to help out. Number nine, reaching out with an open mind. So much in this world today seems to be so partisan. They always say that our politics are broken, but staff, they always seem to have these relationships. So let's talk about reaching out and going across the aisle, reaching out to people that you work on with committees and things like that. Uh, Where do you want to go with this? I mean, I think this podcast is a perfect example of why relationships are important. I mean... Monica and I met on the Hill. Um, our bosses really didn't have anything in common. They, they were not people that would tend to work together on issues. Um, but get, get it. I met Monica at a reception and I will say I was not always the most outgoing of people at receptions. I tended to talk to the people that I knew. Um, and Monica was the person that came up to me and said, Hey, I'm Monica. Who are you? Tell me about you. Um, and over the course of time, we've built this wonderful friendship with one another that goes well beyond, you know, our, our work and is, is a personal deep friendship. Um, and that would have never happened except for reaching across the aisle, trying to get to know people that you would don't normally see or work with. And I give Monica all the credit for it. Um, but it's, it's super important. And, and if you want to do it from like a selfish work perspective, you never know, like, what staffer you meet and when there'll be an opportunity to do a bill together or an amendment or a press conference or plant a tree for Ireland or whatever it ends up being. So, um, and you know, as I said before, you never know where people are going to end up in the long term. um, whether they're going to go into the administration or a, a company that you need help from or wherever it may be. So relationships are so important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one, I'm going to apologize to Natalie for like cornering her. I think <laughs> it's a habit from like when I was a kid, my mom said I used to like go into the grocery store and like <laughs> corner people and ask them what their favorite color was. Um, but I've always been very outgoing and I love talking to people. I love hearing their story. And I think, you know, when you go into those receptions, it's kind of like a meat market and everyone's like, I don't know what to do. I'll hang out by the chicken tenders and hang out here. It's worth it to go and talk to people. It's worth it to have, you know, an open mind and make time to network with people that aren't just in your party, reaching across the aisle, reaching out to people who work in committees that you're interested in. And like, again, as Natalie said, like, I, I don't think either of us did it from a selfish perspective. I worked for Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who could not 
outleft anybody, and she worked for Mick Mulvaney, and there was no way they would be co-sponsoring anything together. But at the same time, you know, there was some things that came about it in terms of, like, auditing the Pentagon. What are they yes. doing there? That's something that came out of it. Um, and also in terms of, like, you know, deep personal friendships, we were able to give each other advice as two women, both working on Capitol Hill, which is predominantly male, predominantly, you know, an old boys network. How do we navigate this space? And I think, you know, women um, and minorities also tend to band together. But I think that's important to uh, get outside of your comfort zone and meet people who don't look like you, who don't talk like you, who worship differently than you. And you keep an open mind because you really never know where people are going to go. And I do recall the day I got hired from Senator Kamala Harris's office, my inbox exploded. And somebody whose cousin's mother's aunt's nephew had met me at something remembered me. And I was like, okay, <laughs> cool. But you never know where you're going to go and you never know where people you meet are going to go. Well, in, in having my friendship with you and my friendship with other people, uh, you know, across the political spectrum, it's changed the way that I look at things, the way that I evaluate issues, the way that I see the world. I've learned so much from you. Um, and that, and, and it's, I think it's really important. And I mean, it, I think it certainly made me a better staffer, but it's also made me a better person to understand you know, how people have different opinions about this policy or their, their different life experiences and how that filters into how you may view something. So um, it's very enriching. I definitely I totally agree with this. And I had a, I was I was mentored to do the same thing. I think it's very easy for those who are listening, who are on Capitol Hill. It's very easy, especially in the kind of like the situation we're in now with the pandemic and a lot of working from home really having your head down, nose to the grindstone, doing good work for your boss. That's great. But you got to get out there. You got to expand your network. What's going to make you marketable when you want to leave the Hill are the connections like what Natalie and Monica are talking about across the aisle. That's what makes you marketable, uh, that you have those connections across. It's not just within one party or one committee or one state delegation. You want to be a, a broad base. And so that's actually when I did the Wilson Center staffer program which we now run but that's that was part of that getting out there kind of expanding that network as i was advised to do so uh you can do great work for your boss but really you need to have a reputation of being of being that kind of the open-minded person that's going to be able to talk to people across the aisle and understand different things it doesn't mean that changes who you are and what you believe but you have a broader sense of what policy is going on and i I talked to a couple of staffers who had gone on a trip together and two different parties, you know, seems just like, like Monica was saying, you know, like how would staffers from Barbara Lee and Mick Mulvaney's office get together? Same situation here. And maybe they're not like working together on legislation, but they can run it by one another and say, Hey, what is your, what would your party say about this? Right. What would you, how does this come off in your world? And it makes you write better legislation and develop better policy if you're just not trying to stab each other in the back, but you're actually reaching out and having that open mind. Yeah, I agree. And you never know, like, sort of what information people will give you, not necessarily intel, but also, like, refinement. So the view that you, the viewpoint you're talking about, Aaron, how does this come off? How does this look? You know how it resonates in your party. But it might resonate in the other party as well. And there might be areas of collaboration that people are surprised that they really want to do. So having that sounding board and that feedback um, is incredibly important. 
All right, we come now to number 10, which is good, I think, for staffers, for interns, and probably everyone in D.C. Always take the interview. Monica, what do you mean by that? Always have the conversation. Um, Always dig further, you know, see what it's about. I think eventually, you know, you will be tapped for a political appointment. You will be asked to consider a new opportunity. And maybe you've already made up your mind. You've read a lot about this you know, potential person. I have no interest in working with this person. I would never be their chief. And then they call you. Always take the interview because you don't really know what you'll discover about that role um, that you didn't before. And also you won't really know who the member is until you are able to talk with them one-on-one. And when else do you get that opportunity to have an hour to yourself with a member of Congress um, or, you know, a secretary or whatever it may be. And some members um, early on, I interviewed to be their chief and early, I just, in my mind, I was dead set against it. I was like, there's no way I'd work for this person ever. And then in having conversations for them, you really gain insight into like who they are, how they think, what they're trying to achieve, what it is that at the end of the day, they hope to do. Like, is this someone who's interested in going to leadership? Is this someone who wants to be a congressman with a small C, really cares about their district? And that is valuable information that you will not be able to get anywhere else. And I think even if they don't pick you, you never know who they might recommend you to. Like I had conversations with one particular member of Congress who ended up um, not choosing me to be his chief, but he recommended me to a whole bunch of people. And I ended up having conversations with those members and, you know, ultimately decided to go in another direction. Um, But it was a really huge thing. If you impress someone and they respect you, when a role opens up, they will think about you. They will promote you. They will keep you in mind. And that's really sort of the difference between mentorship and sponsorship. Like people will sponsor you that you don't even know you're on their radar. Um, you always should have the conversation. Always take the interview. And even if it's some place that you think you would never want to work, that it's a trade association you have no interest in, I'm this kind of staffer. I'm a health staffer. I would never go into environment. Then you learn about environmental justice. You learn about how health is, you know, exacerbated by environmental toxins. You learn all sorts of things. So just keep an open mind and always take the interview, always have the conversation. As I thought about this one, I wanted to expand it to always take the opportunity. Um, Now that I have been away from the Hill, I realize how many incredible opportunities there are for Hill staff, how many amazingly smart, talented, experienced people arrive on your doorstep at the Capitol in a meeting in your office, uh, doing a a one hour briefing, giving a speech. Um, You have so much like strangely power that if you're working on a bill about SEC rule 144, You can pick up the phone and call the professor at Harvard that wrote the book on the subject. They'll take your call. They'll return your call. They'll be happy to talk to you about these things. I always thought I was too busy to go to the briefings, to go to the things. I was just so busy. How could I ever fit that in? And that is one of my biggest regrets is that I missed out on a lot of opportunities that are just available to you every single day. So I would say, in addition, take the opportunities, make the time for it. Take the opportunity to do things like the Wilson Center Foreign Policy Fellowship Program or go to our briefings or things like that. <laughs> go to the Wilson Center briefings. <laughs> they do feed you. After. I, I totally agree, though. I, I mean, I thought 
when I was doing my issues on the Hill, most of my portfolio was centered in healthcare. And I thought when I left the Hill that I would be doing healthcare. I just, that's what I assumed. Um, but as I was doing interviews, I kept real, I started realizing that really what folks out there were looking for wasn't really within what I was good at, which was really appropriations. And the, uh, the, the Wilson center opportunity really came up just in a almost accidental. That's the kind of, that's the way that people advance in DC, right? Or they move and they find the next job is to just ask the question, take the opportunity, expand the network. Yeah. Something that my dad said that I thought was really important was he was like, you know, our generation applied for our jobs, your generation makes them. And I think that's extraordinarily true. Our times are changing. Facebook didn't exist like 15, 20 years ago. The idea of having a social media specialist like didn't exist. There is constant, you know, evolution, change, inflection points, especially in politics, moving at a very fast rate. And your ability to identify opportunities, to seize them, and to bring your skill set to them is incredibly important because you never know what you do might attract someone or they find it enormously valuable. It's something that's sort of ho-hum to you, and everybody knows this. There's an enormous amount of information that is extremely unique to a Hill staffer that people outside will not only pay to know, but also will deeply... Um, acknowledge your expertise on. So always think about, you know, where you want to go, but also be open to altering your plan because you never know where the, where the road turns. So one thing I want to ask in closing about what you guys think about this, because something that I noticed when I talk to staffers, when I talk to interns who are looking to try to get onto the Hill, there's like there's this kind of intangible factor of working on the Hill where you just kind of have to get it. You can't just, it's not really something that can be learned or taught. You have to understand this is how these offices work. Uh, you have to kind of get in the flow of things and anticipate needs uh, to get ahead, right? To be able to, to know what your boss is thinking, know what your supervisor's thinking and try to, to anticipate those issues. Let's talk about that X factor, the intangible, what you've seen on the Hill. So I would say like, you know, the X factor, this intangible thing, it always starts with sort of passion and intention. Like, why are you here? What do you really want to do? What are you trying to make a difference in? Because Lord knows we don't get paid a lot and the hours are long, but if you have something that internally like lights your fire, drives you, that's what's going to get you to the end of the day. Um, and I remember hearing once that a good staffer is one that writes the memo when the boss asks. A great staffer is the one that has the memo before the boss even asks. Like, you know, you anticipate, you think 12 steps ahead. You try to game it out. Like, if we put this out, here's how it'll play. This is the political blowback. Here's, you know, all the scenarios. One, scenario B, scenario A, scenario B. And then what the fallout is or, you know, the subsequent um, consequences from that particular area. I think a lot of it is just being a strategist. Like politics is strategy. It is moving the chess pieces on the chessboard, thinking about how it'll affect the other pieces. Because you may have a great idea. You put it out there. But did you check with leadership? Did you talk to the chairman of the committee? Did you check in with the administration? All these answers, you know, 
maybe no, you decide not to do it anyway, but you have to have that consideration. The ability to have the forethought and thinking ahead. I think about that show Queen's Gambit, where the girl's sitting on her bed and she's like moving the chess pieces in her mind above. That's really what it takes to get ahead. You have to think about 10 steps ahead, where you move your rook, where the bishop is going to be, and as a result, where the queen is protected and if its left flank is open. Except the queen is Joe Biden, or (laughs) the bishop is John Thune. Things like that. You really have to think about everything in an ecosystem. And this is super Buddhist, but one, you know, reaction often has an opposite and equal reaction. Think about what you're putting out there and how it's going to come back to you. I agree with everything Monica said, um, especially the part about passion. And I guess I would call that X factor like political acumen. And to me, it is about reading people, understanding people. What is what is a person's motivation? What is their experience? What's going to speak to them? And then when you understand that, you can tailor what you're working on, what your messages are, um, how you go about achieving those so that you're, so that you're working in concert with the person or the group of people that you're trying to work with, um, and not, not butting heads. And so you're opening doors instead of closing them. Um, and a lot of what you do in Congress is it's very interpersonal. So to me, in addition to all the things Monica said, it's, it's about understanding people, understanding motivations. Um, and I think it kind of goes back to those relationships too. Well, this has been an in-depth conversation, which is another word for long. But so let's run down the top 10 here. Number one, discretion. Number two, putting the team needs before your own. Number three, accountability. Number four, doing what you're assigned with excellence. Number five, learn to write quickly and concisely. Number six, emotional regulation. Number seven, admit what you don't know. Number eight, admit your failures. Number nine, reach out with an open mind. And number 10, always take the interview slash opportunity. Monica and Natalie, thank you for taking the opportunity to talk to me today. Uh, This, I think, is going to be very useful, not only for somebody maybe who is a student who is looking to get onto the Hill. I know that we have some professors that put the Need to Know podcast in their syllabus uh, as a good way to get smart on foreign policy issues. But if you're looking to get into this world of Capitol Hill and policymaking, this was a really interesting primer. And for those who were on the Hill, this might have covered some ground that you already know. But I know when I was on the Hill, I needed somebody to really give me a nudge in this direction. So if you're on the Hill, hopefully we've provided something for you today. Monica and Natalie, thanks so much for joining me for this. Absolutely. Appreciate it.